Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey guys, it's Steve Allman. And Cheryl Strayed. We have just celebrated the second anniversary of Dear Sugar Radio. We hope to keep making the show for many years to come. Ah, but here's the thing. You, our listeners, are a huge part of that. And that's only going to happen if you can show your support in any amount at wbur.org slash give sugar. That's wbur.org slash give sugar. And thank you. So much. Dear Sugar is supported by... The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Oh, dear son, won't you please share some little sweet days with me? Hi, Steve. Hi, Cheryl. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary to us. Two years. It's two years. It's the latex anniversary, am I right? Or is that <laughs> just a so. sick fantasy? I think you said that last year, didn't you? Did you make that same joke? <laughs> Every it's, year. It's see, latex. this is like this is how we are. We're like in a it's like we're in a sort of marriage of a, a professional marriage where now I have to roll my eyes at the jokes that you make over and over and over again. But the truth is I thought that was me doing that. I still find you to be funny. I, uh, that's the mark of a real love, isn't it? That I still laugh at your It's jokes. lasted a whole 2 years. 2 years. So listen, we're going to take a look back today and actually next week too. We're doing a two-part episode, our sort of end of year, loosely end of year where we look back to some of those episodes that came before, especially those that either brought in a lot of listener response. We, mm-hmm. we always get great responses, interesting stories, people who agree with us and disagree with us and want to add something more to the conversation, and we love them. And right. this is our chance to really share them with the listeners, and in some cases, uh, revise some of our own thinking about some of the discussions we had. Absolutely. I mean, here's the deal that we've said all along. Part of the reason that we really keep doing this is precisely because as it has evolved, we feel like we're having this big conversation and we are blessed with listeners who are involved actively. They want us to know what we got right, what we got wrong, what their experiences are, how they line up. And that is really a joy. I have to say, the first episode we're going to discuss, it was called Past is Present. We looked at Letters from people who were in some way telling us that they had 
a past experience that was coming to bear on their present life, whether it be their relationships or, you know, their their internal struggles, something they couldn't let go of. And one of the letters in that episode was from Unchill. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that oh, letter, God, that scenario? Yes, absolutely. So Unchill was uh, the child, adult child of uh, alcoholics who was in a relationship with a, a, a nice, sensitive guy, but a guy who did drink. And she was deeply troubled by this. And I should say, she said very explicitly in her letter, he is not an alcoholic. I do not think he has a drinking problem, but right. I am uncomfortable with his drinking. Right. And her question to us was about whether this was a deal killer for her, that maybe she couldn't be in a relationship with somebody who drank alcohol because of her past, or if she was being unreasonable by having this um, struggle, like if she could in some way learn to really have a more compatible relationship with this man, even though he did drink alcohol. Again, she did emphasize in her letter, not an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. But the responses really focused on, um, I think, ways in which we maybe oversimplified the issue of alcohol and people's lives. I want to read just a few little excerpts of um, some of these letters. Laura wrote, the essence of your response underscored what is so grossly misunderstood in our culture. This belief that when it comes to drinking, there are alcoholics and then everyone else. That drinking is either, quote, wonderfully joyous or it is, quote, dark and destructive when, in fact, most people fall into the vast spectrum of gray in between. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I thought, well, right on. Yeah. That's absolutely true. I don't think you, I don't think either one of us was trying to oversimplify the role that alcohol plays in people's lives. But because it played such an extreme role in Unchill's mind and heart, right. we did sort of bifurcate it into acceptable, you know, joyous and wonderful versus destructive. In other words, it was so extreme in her um, life that we kind of reflected that and how we discussed it. Well, you know, and we also take people at face value. And maybe in that we we sort of did too much when it came to Unchill's letter. As I noted at the outset, she mm-hmm. said emphatically in her letter, my boyfriend isn't an alcoholic. And I think that that letter that you just read from Laura and others, um, there's one from Ashley. She says to tell Unchill that it's entirely her own personal bias that makes her uncomfortable with her boyfriend's drinking feels quite frankly like gaslighting. Mm. The CDC says moderate drinking is defined as up to one drink a day for women and up to two drinks a day for men. Unchill says her boyfriend regularly has three to four drinks a night, which the CDC defines as heavy drinking. Now, what I sort of forgot in my desire to really be addressing, you know, Unchill's words, Mm -hmm. I really pay really close attention to the letters that people write to us and what they say. And I respond to that. What I sort of forgot is is that, that it is true that, first of all, none of us can say if somebody else has a drinking problem or not. None of us can say if somebody else is an alcoholic. That's a very personal thing. Two drinks a night can mean uh, something different in one life compared to the other. And um, certainly three or four drinks a night can be a problem drinking or not problem drinking. It depends how you look at it. It also depends how the person who's doing the drinking feels about that. Are there negative consequences that are being brought about by drinking? Some of our listeners pointed out, indeed, there were, because Unchill was uncomfortable with it. Right. And so, you know, I think that where we aired there is, is, you know, we were talking to one specific situation about this huge thing. Alcohol and its impact on individuals and society is an enormous problem. We didn't mean to belittle it by focusing so specifically on Unchill, um, but I can see that in some ways we did. We talked maybe imprecisely about 
Yeah, sobriety. And, you know, Ashley goes on to say adult children of alcoholics absolutely need to define their relationships, their own relationships with alcohol. Yeah. And this is, again, the inherent limitation of what we do, as we know, and we're made aware of by our generous but frank letter writers. As I said in the program, I didn't grow up in a family that used a lot of alcohol. I don't use a lot of alcohol. So I am not as attuned in the way that somebody who is an adult child of an alcoholic would be to how important it is for them to define that and for them to be the ones who decide that what might be reasonable to the rest of society is not reasonable or comfortable to me, which is, I think, part of what Anchil was trying to tell us. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that we've done over and over again on this show is when we do talk about an issue and we feel like, okay, we didn't really address it yep. as much as we can, that we do another, we do a future episode on it. Right. And so I'd like us to, to undertake this. One of the, the, the other pieces of feedback we got back to Laura, she suggested uh, that we have a guest on who's somebody who does yep. um, really have direct experience with this specific struggle. She asked us, would you talk about sexual abuse or rape or domestic violence without bringing on a guest? who's had those experiences, I don't think you would. And, you know, we, we have talked about those issues without having those guests on. Right. Um, but it is also true that we've had many, many times we've turned to either experts or people who have experience with those particular issues. Right. And I wish we'd done that when it came to Unchill's letter. The reason we didn't, as it turns out, and, and, you know, this took us sort of going back and listening, was to realize, oh, the way we framed that episode was about can you escape your past and how much does the past intrude upon the present? We were coming at it really from that basic psychological question and not from the perspective, as I think we will moving forward, of if we're going to do a show about alcoholism, the effect of drug use or addiction, then we'll make sure that the guest that we have on is somebody who knows about that world personally yeah. and professionally. I also think another thing that happens with us mm-hmm. is this show is a conversation. And like any conversation, sometimes what happens is the way we start talking about something becomes the way we talk about something. Mm-hmm. And then if there were that third or fourth or fifth or sixth or hundredth person in the room mm-hmm. to say, well, wait a minute, you didn't think about this part or you kind of imprecisely expressed this point. Right. Um, that's that's what these letters are really. They're, they're right. in some ways the corrections and the precisions and th- that are that that aren't in the room because it's just the two of us. That's right. Now there are some things that are less controversial mm. that we discuss on Dear Sugar Radio. Yes. And I'll tell you that one of them that nobody ever disagrees with me when we're on the subject of cats. Yes. Okay. Because people who know me know I am a cat lady. I will always come down on the side of the the pussy. Okay, yes. so um, you know, Cheryl, I'm so glad that you said it so that I didn't have to. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. So we did discuss a, a letter uh, from a woman who called herself a crazy and confused cat lady. Yes. This was on one of our rapid fire episodes. Should I stay or should I go? Mm-hmm. And uh, you might remember that I had zero reluctance and zero hesitation in answering. Um, the letter from her. I said she should absolutely go. She had moved across the country, moved into this place with this boyfriend, and she had two cats. And her boyfriend said that he would, you know, love and accept the cats. And he was a big shithead to the cats. He treated <laughs> the cats terribly. Yes. And she asked, you know, what do I do? And I said, get out of there. And here's what she said. Dear Sugars, thank you so much for featuring my letter on the show. Perfect timing for a follow-up as I am in the process of moving out of my now ex-boyfriend's house right now. Shortly, Yay! Yay. 
Shortly after I wrote to you, I sent one of my cats to stay with my parents to see if my boyfriend could at least adjust to living with one of my cats, the more mellow one. He had, again, promised if I did this, things would be different. They weren't. My cat remained terrified of him, and my boyfriend liked it that way. Sugars, hearing your advice was a wake-up call. My friends and parents had been telling me I should go for months, but having objective listeners be as unwavering in their advice to leave... And as I say unwavering, Cheryl Strait is looking at me like, yeah, that was me. She really means that was what I was saying. (laughs) That's right. Somehow made it really sink in. My boyfriend wasn't changing. In fact, he was becoming more miserable to live with in ways that went beyond the cats, and I needed to go. Still, after the episode aired, our relationship dragged on for a few more months, mostly for convenience, but also for my own fear of what comes next. I'm glad to say I was finally able to convince myself that whatever that is, I will be happier and healthier than I am now. Let's hope there's an abundance of crazy cat-loving gentlemen in my future. Signed, crazy but no longer confused cat lady. All right. Yay! I'm sure there are such gentlemen out there for you, crazy crazy cat lady. Now, the difficult part is that we have to segue from the crazy cat lady letter to a discussion of... Pussy. Yeah. I was going to say, speaking of pussy, (laughs) we're going to talk about porn. Oh, this is just a really controversial issue. Our porn episodes, we did two parts. Right. Addressing a few of the many, many letters that we have on the subject. And it does seem like that people want to be on one side or the other, you know, and that anyone who kind of steps into the the fray of the gray, like we did, I think, on our episodes, mm-hmm. though some of our listeners think that we were really on one side or the other, is going to generate some some yeah. response. I kept having to remind myself, response is a good thing, right? Right. And in fact, what's interesting is there were people who were upset by this episode for exactly opposite reasons. Mm-hmm. And that was what was so fascinating to me. There were some people saying, how could you for this reason? And and somebody else on the other side of the spectrum saying, how could you for the exact We were either reason. puritanical idiots who were just like anti-sex and anti-porn and anti-everything. Right. Or we were just these you know, apologists. Like, how could we dare to say that it might be okay to, you know, get off to a porn movie once in a while or something? So, and, you know, what's, what, of course, this speaks to is that we all bring ourselves to it. We're always projecting. You and I too. Okay. Mm-hmm. The way that we answer these I'm questions. I'm projecting right now. We're trying to be <laughs> as, you know, open-minded and unbiased and all that, but but we are all essentially who we are and we and we and we see the world through our own points of view and I certainly felt like on the other end of that from a lot of people in response mm-hmm. to the porn. Well, episode. let's hear some of these responses uh, and you'll get a sense for what we're talking about. Anya wrote to us, when you watch free porn, you don't know what you're getting. You could literally be watching someone get raped and not know it because they were drugged and look happy. Not to mention watching free porn is asking someone to work for free. To make sure you're watching porn that treats the actors well, you have to seek it out from paid porn sites that label themselves feminist porn. Feminist porn can be rough, it can be degrading, or it can be loving and vanilla. The only common thread is that the people you're watching are happy to be there. And then somebody who called themselves puzzled and provoked wrote this. Using porn in pictures, films, online is lack of compassion. We all know that. And in my view, we should be puzzled, ashamed, worried. Okay, some women will say they're not exploited, but how do you know? The consumption of porn is not mainly about me and my partner. It's about thousands of people who are being used to produce the porn. We should not contribute to the porn industry by using it. Every click matters. I'll tell you that of the many letters we received, this one was the starkest. 
and it had an impact on me in particular because I wrote this whole book against football, right, that was really not about condemning football as a form of entertainment, but essentially saying, as fans, we have to interrogate what it is we're getting off on and recognize we are sponsors of it. We're not passive consumers. We are the thing that creates the industry, that creates the incentive for, in the case of football, football players to damage their brains or run the risk of damaging their brains. And in the case of porn performers, people who are low-wage workers selling their body and their sexuality to the highest bidder because there's a paycheck involved. We create that set of incentives. Uh And I think there is a little moral action here. It's not just a lack of imagination, which is what I said on the show. It's also a little lack of compassion. Well, there were also people who completely disagreed with that point <laughs> okay. and were furious with with both of us. A woman named Angelina wrote to us, and she was among the, the chorus of voices who were, who were mad at us for really saying there's this assumption um, that was made by the letter writer that women in porn must be psychologically damaged. And we should say she was, she, she has been in pornographic films. Right. Angelina writes, I suppose it's easy to come to that conclusion if your only exposure to porn is what's available on Pornhub. Sadly, we live in a bigoted society that upholds unrealistic standards in any form of mainstream media is going to reflect that to some extent. However, just as there are TV shows and books and movies that subvert unhealthy norms, there is plenty of porn that does not reinforce damaging cultural power dynamics. Most of it is made by independent performers who create their content solo or with partners they select themselves. They represent all body types, ages, orientations, and sexual preferences. And, you know, this was something, that, that part of this criticism that we received from people who were saying, oh, you, you missed the point. They were saying to us, you have to just look deeper. Mm-hmm. And so, Steve, I did. Oh, yes. <laughs> I did. We got so many uh, recommendations for feminist porn. Some of you may recall that I had, on part two of our porn series, said, listen, I don't know what feminist porn is. Well, I, I learned a couple of things, some of them thanks to our, our letter writers. One mm-hmm. is that, indeed, that feminist porn is, is porn that's ethically made. It's porn that you have to pay for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things I want to say, we're going to go back in a moment to reading more of these feedback letters, but I do want to address this idea that, you know, that there is ethical porn out there and that we can be better consumers of it. And I got done doing those episodes and I went to my husband and I said, tell me the truth about your porn use. As I said on our episode, we kind of had had an ask, don't ask, don't tell policy. Right. And that was because I felt like, okay, we have our sex life. I also understand if, you know, if he wants to, whatever, get off once in a while. That doesn't bother me. And I neither do I really want to know, like, what, what you know, he's watching. Because I, I did fear that it was like a lot of the porn I've seen in the past, which is really sexist, icky, ugly porn that makes me feel bad. Right. And indeed, that's the case. That was the case. And so I said to my husband, how about we together watch some feminist porn. I've never watched porn with a partner. I am not interested in watching pornographic movies. It's not what turns me on. It's the it's the erotic stories, as yes. I've said in the past. Sure. But I thought, well, let's give it a whirl. And and enough people had recommended one person to me mm. that I decided to, to pursue her. And that is a woman named Erica Lust. And many of them first pointed me not to her porn movies, but to her TEDx talk, called It's Time for Porn to Change. Uh And what I really loved about um, what she had to say, which 
was not that she's in disagreement, essentially, with with our general assessment that a whole lot of porn is actually terrible and abusive and misogynistic and it hurts the people who make it and it, it and to some degree hurts the people who watch it too. She actually really comes at her filmmaking from that premise. And she says, you know, we've got to change the way we show what pleasure is. Mm-hmm. And what her vision as a feminist porn maker, at least as, as far as I can discern, is that, that, you know, that this is really a reciprocal relationship. When you're showing a heterosexual couple, it's not all about servicing the man. It's about the woman having pleasure, too. Mm-hmm. So I went to her website, lustcinemas.com. <laughs> yes. I became a member. Here I am, you know, porno movie virgin. Yeah. Sign up. I put down my thirty four ninety five or whatnot, and I had a date with my husband every day for like a week, and every day we would go and sit there together and we would watch one of Erica Lust's movies. And the very first one, guess what film is is suggested to me? It pops up on the screen. It's called Hello Pool Boy. <laughs> Don't believe it. I'm not kidding you. I am not kidding you. Now, the so I long-time Hello. listeners of the show must know yes. that during the porn episode and for many weeks afterwards in a long and absurd string of emails, Cheryl's persistent <laughs> fantasies about a chlorine-drenched, uh, dripping pool boy were, were prominent. A, a, a younger man, something of a stallion, at any rate. Right. And the, and the, the funny thing about it is, like, I've never actually had a real fantasy about a pool boy. It's, sure. it's more like a sort of metaphor for my fantasy. Of course it is. But hello, pool boy. We're watching it, and I say, is this different than what you've watched in the past? And he said, absolutely. It's completely different. And it was really about that kind of, that sense of reciprocity. You get the sense that both people are wanting to give pleasure to each other. Huh. And it's not that it's not dirty or naughty or, you know, there are all kinds of scenarios that are presented that, that are still, you know, absolutely pornographic. You see real, I mean, th- th- this right. is not, um, you, you see a lot of things going on down there, you know. <laughs> I've, I've been witness okay. to many, many dark things now. but oh, porn But, but, but right. in a kind of joyous way. And, you know, I will say it, it, it opened my mind to what porn can be. Hmm. And I think that part of what, what goes on here when we, we are encountering these these emails in our inbox that are, you know, they're mad at us because we've talked about porn in one way and mad at us because we've talked about porn in another way is this collision of really what porn is. You know, now that I'm an expert in the whole world of alternative pornographies, yes. um, I will say that there's more out there. But it's a little disingenuous to be talking only about that kind of porn when we're encountering some of these letters that really are from people who aren't watching that kind of porn. That's right. And Interestingly, Angelina, the one of the people who wrote us who was a sex worker, also wrote this very interesting note at the end of her letter that's worth, I think, thinking about as well. She said, I also want to briefly address the assumption made by a letter writer that women in porn must be psychologically damaged. Well, sure, I am psychologically damaged. I have depression and anxiety, and I'm a survivor of, of abusive relationships. Do those factors render me incapable of making choices about my sexuality and my career? I hope that you can understand the dangers of suggesting that sufferers of mental illness and trauma should be considered devoid of personal agency. Mm. Fascinating Mm -hmm. in the sense that it's essentially saying people have the freedom to do as they wish. We don't want to rob anybody of their personal agency. What I think is more interesting is to interrogate those of us, as Cheryl has been doing actively, who consume porn 
and which kind of porn and how it's made and what its effect is and mm-hmm. how it, what role it plays in the relationship. I assume that you, Brian, and the pool boy had a good old time. We did. I mean, it was re- you know this is what was so interesting to me is I actually am not turned on by pornographic movies. You know, I have watched a, a week's worth of movies. <laughs> even feminist, right? And even feminist porn. And, and but, but what here's what happened. We had incredible sex every single time after we watched those movies. And what I realized it was that, you know, I wasn't aroused by the porn itself, but the porn provided for me and Brian this kind of little place where we could kind of get into the language of, of sex and intimacy. Mm-hmm. And it was like this little thing we did together that then was the bridge to the thing we really do together. Mm-hmm. I mean, my God, we've been together almost 22 years. Mm-hmm. We have kids. We have this. It separated us from the rest of that kind of mundane demands of our life. And it was like, okay, we're going to sit in this room together and share this erotic experience and see where it takes us. Right. So what I've always been looking for is, you know, sort of essentially what people like Erica Lust are offering. Well, one of the nice notes we did get was, in fact, an, an update from the letter writer Unsure. She was that woman who was engaged to a man who was addicted to porn, and he said he was trying to overcome the addiction, but she wasn't convinced that he was really doing the necessary work, and she wasn't sure that she could go through with marrying him. Mm-hmm. And we, I think both of us said, yeah, you know, you have a right to be unsettled and you've got to figure this out before you make that long, good promise. So here's what she wrote to us. Dear Sugars, I'm happy to report that we did get married and are building an open, healthy, and loving relationship. As Noah, that's Noah Church, who was our guest, uh, said, we've been able to find a closer, more meaningful relationship after healing together. Here's how it happened. I found a counselor to help me sort through all the feelings I was experiencing. My husband soon followed of his own accord. The key was finding the right counselors to help. I was able to find a certified sex addiction therapist. My therapist helped me understand the cycle of porn addiction and how to best communicate my needs to my partner. My husband also started seeing a certified sex addiction therapist, and his therapist was a perfect fit for him. My partner stopped watching porn, did weekly therapy with check-ins during the week, and installed accountability software to track his internet use. Our therapists had similar approaches, and they collaborated on our recovery and together recommended activities and exercises to complete as we built this new relationship. I knew recovery was working because I started to see changes in my partner's behavior. He talked to me about his feelings. Yay, good. We've developed our emotional intimacy, and our sex life is active, exploratory, and fun. Uh, And she just concludes, My husband's recovery is certainly not finished. There are still triggering moments, but the difference is that he can share this with me. And we now know how to take care of each other in these situations. It's been a long road, and there were days when I was sure I couldn't continue, but I did. I'm amazingly happy with our current relationship. I feel loved and taken care of every day by my empathic, caring, and open-minded husband. I think this is a topic that is not discussed with the urgency that it needs to be. I hope my letter helps to start a meaningful conversation between partners. Thanks for answering my letter. And she signs it no longer unsure. That's great. Yeah. So I feel like we've been, you know, we've talked about all the the criticism we got Mm -hmm. in response to those porn episodes. But we also got a lot of praise from people who really have struggled with this in their own lives or their relationships. 
you know, people who, who felt like it, it made a difference. Um, we have a letter from a woman who signs herself healing wife. She says, Dear Sugars, thank you from the bottom of my heart for your two episodes on porn. And thank you for your wonderful guests. One of the biggest places that I've struggled in my seven-year relationship with my husband is when I've accidentally encountered his porn use. I've worked hard from day one, and he himself would tell you I have succeeded at being an exceptional wife. One of the many things he loves is that I love all things sex with him. So I struggled to understand why he was using porn when I'm so down with sex anytime, anywhere. For me personally, my husband's use of porn is a form of infidelity. Esther Perel, she is amazing, helped me figure that out when you did the three-part series on infidelity with her. But it wasn't until now, after listening to these most recent episodes, that I was able to admit that to my husband. So now my healing begins, and it is thanks to the honest line of communication that has been opened with my husband and even myself. Yeah. So, you know, I, that's that's my favorite thing, when people... Listen to the podcast and share it with the people in their lives who matter, Mm -hmm. their partners, their friends, their kids, their parents. And, you know, that's we are just the beginning of a conversation. I never think that anything we've said on the show has covered all the ground, you know, and and I think that's a really wonderfully useful way to use this podcast is to say, okay, here are these other people we don't know. They've written in letters. They have struggles. Here's what Steve and Cheryl have to say. Mm -hmm. Here's what the guest has to say about it. But now healing wife turning to her husband and saying you Mm -hmm. know there's this thing that is keeping me apart from you and let's and let's heal it so that's a beautiful thing support for dear sugars comes from better help if you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com sugars today to get 10% off your first month. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, so we did an episode on May-December romances. That we did. And now I want to say just for for myself, again, this is another one I I mentioned before, our response to Unchill and and the response that brought kind of unsettled me because I was like, ah, you know, I I missed some things there. Uh, May-December was another one where I honestly, I don't know if you remember this, even when we, you know, the process is we, we record these conversations, answer these letters. Our lovely producer, Amory Sievertson, goes and edits them and, and makes them beautiful. And she sent us uh, the edit. And we, re- we listened to those edits before they go on there and make yep. changes, right? And I said, well, wait a minute. Uh, didn't I talk about this, this, and the other thing? That's right. And she was like, no, you right. didn't. And here's, here's again, a, a really good example of the way the letters we answer can kind of be like the force of a river. You know, you're suddenly swept down that channel instead of down others. And, right. you know, I did feel um, that I myself, and we conversationally, but I'll take the blame, um, 
you know, that I that I didn't really address, you know, this dynamic, this kind of older man, younger woman kind of mm-hmm. thing that is really the most common May-December relationship. And frankly, it's the kind of relationship that it, and this pisses me off to no end that nobody even like looks twice, you know, looks twice at that. Um, I don't think of myself as being with an older man. My husband's seven and a half years older than me. Uh, but you y- you can you can bet that if I were the, the one who were seven and a half years older than him, yep. we would be constantly talking about how he's with an older woman, right? Yep. You know, not we, he and I, but you know, just out in the atmosphere, the culture. And so I do think that there's that double standard, and I wanted to kind of dig more deeply into that on on that May December episode we didn't do it but another but that aspect was in, that was entirely your fault totally my fault okay good all right but the other aspect yeah. is this is this thing that's I, I think we're seeing more and more commonly is the flip of that where there is an older woman with a younger man and we did get a bunch of letters from people immediately in such relationships mm-hmm. okay here's one from Christine My husband of three weeks is 15 years younger than me. I'll soon be 44, and he is 29. The older woman-younger man relationship is often overlooked or brushed off with a flippant remark such as cougar or other such nonsense. But here's the thing. Love is what love is. Age, just like race, should never stand in the way of two people who truly want to be together. It's a blessing every day to wake up with a man who truly sees me. I wouldn't trade it for all the socially acceptable romances in the universe with love, Christine. Mm-hmm. She's just one of many. And in fact, we should play a little clip of Lucinda Franks, who is our guest, who's married to someone who's 27 years her senior, Robert Morgenthau, former New York district attorney. And she shared a little bit of her wisdom on having a significantly older partner. I thought this was so smart. Let's listen. If you want to make God laugh, Tell him your plans. Nobody knows who or why or what is going to happen. You know, your 22-year-old husband could have a catastrophic accident or illness at any age. Your older husband could, like mine is, live, you know, well into his 90s and, and, and more. There is nothing constant but change. This is what really was revealed by us focusing on, you know, this particular kind of relationship was a lot of the blowback wasn't just, hey, there's this other side of it, which is older women with younger men, but this persistent idea of, look, love is what it is, as Christine says. Mm -hmm. And as Lucinda says, that 22-year-old husband of yours could die tomorrow. And what matters is not their ages or genders or, you know, so ethnicity, so forth. It's the nature of that very specific love itself. Right, which, you know, we tell ourselves all sorts of stories about how it's supposed to be, but it really boils down to two people who make it happen. Yeah. You know, we did have people saying, how about another episode? Yes, they did. But focusing on, as Love found in June, September writes, I'd be interested in hearing of similar experiences of women who are much older than their significant other, the resilience of such relationships, their strengths and weaknesses, their special challenges. You know, because I do think, I think you're right, love is love. I also think there are special challenges. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's complicated when you're 45 and your boyfriend's 28. And I think that that's can lead to all kinds of special scenarios that are worth discussing. Right. And one of the things that we find ourselves ending up doing shows on 
are those particular circumstances that are misunderstood, stereotyped, or just not given serious consideration at other venues. And this is clearly an example of that. I think we will do a segment down the line next season on Dear Sugar Radio that focuses on whatever we want to call it, December-May relationships. Yeah, but, you know, we have to get the letters first. All these letters that we have from yep. these older women and younger men uh, are really That's right, about... They're saying we're, we're so happy. happy. Yeah. It's so great. And we, I do think we have a few letters uh, from people who are having troubles because uh, they have a younger partner. And this doesn't have to be heterosexual. It could be any anyone where I guess the partner is much younger. We'd love to hear from those people because even, you know, the we did have a, a letter from a lesbian couple on our May-December episode, Minding the Gap. Yeah. But again, it was from the younger member of that relationship um, expressing some concern. So let's hear from, you know, the reverse. Let's hear from some of those older members of those couples and, and talk about that dynamic from that angle. So listen, we did get an update from the woman yes, in mind in the gap. That's right. For those of you uh, who don't, who need a little memory jog, she is a 30 year old woman and she was wondering whether she could build a life and family with her 46 year old girlfriend. She's crazy about her girlfriend, but she was concerned about that 16 year age gap. Mm-hmm. And we asked her for a little update. Here's what she said Sugars, when I got your request for an update, my girlfriend and I were surrounded by our closest friends and family. We got married. Now she's my wife. Yay! Yay! When I wrote that letter to you, I was deeply in love, but there was some lingering uncertainty. Six months passed, and my girlfriend and I were talking more seriously about marriage. The very day the episode with my question aired, I had woken up and said, I need a sign. Steve and Cheryl, you were thoughtful and generous in your advice to me, and Lucinda Franks had an amazing line that I took to heart. You found the treasure of your destiny. I decided that day that I was ready to get married. Thanks so much for your help, Cheryl and Steve. I listen to you every week, and I always glean tidbits on compassion, self-love, and the mystery of life. All the best. Minding the Gap. That's so wonderful. Yeah. We're so happy for you, Minding the Gap. Yes. So... One last show we're going to look back on. Before we do that, I want to say, do listen next week, because this is just part one. I mean, we we decided this year that there were so many different episodes that we wanted to look back upon that we would spread it out over two episodes. So this isn't the end. But before we end today, let's talk about this last episode, Steve. One of the really complicated things about this show is we get to really contemplate so many other people's secrets. Mm -hmm. And we decided to do a whole episode on family secrets because they can be, as we know, so painful and so deep and dark and destructive over decades and generations. And one of the letters we looked at was um, from a woman who called herself Lost somewhere in California. This was a, a letter... It really rocked me to the core. I think in the course of the episode, I even said, I see myself in you. I I didn't have her exact scenario, but I related to her. She had been sexually abused by her um, stepfather, who is still married to her mother. And um, she was still carrying a lot of that shame. And she wanted to know if she should share this secret with her mother. The rest of her family uh, was encouraging her to tell her mom, but she wasn't sure if that was the right thing to do. And in fact, she wrote to us, and then I think actually it would be good for us to get in touch with her. So we're going to give her a call. Here's what she wrote. I wrote my letter to you almost two years ago. Time passed, and my secret rose to the surface with a strong need to be revealed. 
My wonderful partner proposed to me, and while I was elated, my joy was quickly quieted by the unrelenting feeling that I'd have to do something about this secret. How would I tell my mom that I didn't want my stepfather to walk me down the aisle? How would I tell her that I don't even want him to attend my wedding? I thought about calling him and telling him that I would invite him to the wedding, but that I didn't want him to come. I tried to convince my fiancé that we needed to elope, but his family is very close and that's not an option for us. I started talking about this secret more and more in places where I feel safe, specifically women's AA meetings. My people told me how important it was for me to speak my truth to my mom. And then one day, a friend said, Hey, there's a recent episode of Dear Sugar that you should really listen to. Hmm. So let's call Let's uh, call her. Yeah, somewhere, lost somewhere in California and see what happened when she listened to that episode. Hello. Hi, is this um, growing somewhere in California? Lost somewhere. <laughs> well, no, she signs it now. <laughs> oh, growing. growing. That's right. Yeah, sorry. Currently growing. <laughs> yes, this is me. Hi, Hi this is Cheryl. Hi, Cheryl. Hi, and this is Steve. You probably figured that out. Yes, I did. Hi, Steve. Hi. So, listen, we read just the first half of your letter. Your friend suggested, hey, there's this recent episode of Dear Sugar Radio that you should listen to. Yes. What happened next? Well, I found the episode that I thought she might be talking about. And as soon as I started hearing you read the letter, I knew it was mine. And of course, I started crying. Um, the timing was really perfect. I um, I just kept feeling more and more like I needed to tell my mom and not really knowing exactly how I was going to do that. And it was like a very clear sign from the universe that it was time for me to, you know, let go of this thing that I've been holding on to. Mm. And so what happened? So, did you talk to your mom? I did. You know, it got to be pretty close to Christmas and my mom was coming out to my sister's house and I was as well. And I was like, you know, there's no way that I can sit with her and, not have this conversation, but I don't want to do that at Christmas. And I ended up writing my mom an email and, uh, you know, I, I felt a little weird about that. I wanted to kind of, I wanted to either have her come out to see me, but the timing just wasn't really working out with our, both of our schedules. And so the best thing that I could do, and I was told by my sponsor and my therapist that it was okay for me to write her an email and I did and she read it and immediately showed it to my stepdad and he denied what happened. And when she, you know, she was like, well, I want, you know, to hear details. And so when I started to try and give her details, she changed the subject and brought the subject back to my real father, who is an alcoholic and how he liked to kind of tell stories. And, um, she was like, you know, you're just like him. (laughs) And, uh, I felt a little sad when she said that, but she just couldn't understand why I didn't tell her then. And I said, you know, I had to live with you guys for the rest, for the next, you know, eight years. Like, how was I going to tell you this thing and then have you not believe me? Mm-hmm. You know, it took me like 20 years to learn that it wasn't my fault, oh, you know? Yeah. And she, she ended up getting really upset and she was like, well, She's like, you're being really mean. I can't talk to you anymore. And I was like, 
you know, okay, I'm here for you. I love you. You know, let me know if you want to talk about this anymore. And then she hung up on me. And so I spent Christmas with her and it was, you know, it was pretty much as I expected it to be. Um, it's, it's a little weird. I do feel like, um, it's kind of like this elephant in the room now, you know, she lives with this man and she's married to him. And, um, when I call her, he's usually always around and, you know, she did make some comment about wanting me to come out and face him and talk about it with him. And I don't think I'm really ready for that just yet, but I do feel like I'm more ready to have a better relationship with her. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I just feel a lot of compassion for her, you know, and as much as it like hurts for me to know that she's hurting, like I also feel so much more free mm-hmm. knowing right. that I have let go of this thing that I've been holding on to for so long. And, that, you know, I'm getting married this year and I don't have to like start my new life off with this like big secret. That's right. I don't have to like pretend to have like this person at my wedding who like has done this horrible thing, you know? Oh, you are so strong and amazing. And I'm really, really happy for you that you did that. And I know that your mother's response wasn't the ideal one, but at least you guys are still talking. And the fact that you have so much compassion for your mom right. just touches my heart because, you know, I, I think what I also hear in your voice is that you have a lot of compassion for yourself and that that's been a really, really powerful part of your healing is to learn how to have that. I remember in your letter, you know, you still had those those little bits of like, it's so easy for us people who have been sexually abused as kids to somehow own a piece of it and carry it forward. And it sounds like you're not doing that anymore. And I'm just so proud of you and so happy for you. Thank you so much. And congratulations, Mazel Tov in advance to you and your lucky guy. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And now, you know, you signed your letter, your original letter to us, Lost Somewhere in California. And then when you wrote us this update a few weeks ago, you signed it, Currently Growing Somewhere in California. Mm-hmm. May you continue to grow deep and tall and wide and beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Ah. Tough. That's so be- it's tough, but beautiful. I mean... Yeah. You know, it is hard for her mom to suddenly hear this. I mean, this is, as she was talking, I was imagining the letter that we might receive from her mother, that like if her mother wrote to us what yeah. she might say. And I do think that, you know, what what we want from our mothers is to say, I believe you and I'm instantly leaving this man who's been this abuser. Uh, and what we know is often uh, real life gets more complicated than that. And people can't always act. Right on that new information when it's a lot to absorb. I mean, here's here's one thing that's very complicated. I was going to say, if the mother never suspected it before or knew anything before. And, you know, I can't imagine to know. I, I think we got a couple letters in response to this episode, actually, mm-hmm. um, from people who did say, hey, the mother was complicit. The mother knew. But, you know, I I have to say, as somebody who had this conversation with my mother, a different kind of conversation, mm-hmm. My sister and I told our mother together that we had been sexually abused 10 years before by my grandfather. And I remember it's like my mother was so shocked. And then she was also like, 
oh my gosh, you know, he was sexually inappropriate. I never imagined he would be that way with you because you were little tiny children. Right. And so, you know, I, I guess you could blame my mother. She didn't protect us. Um, but she also didn't know. She was also a kind of victim, of course, mm-hmm. you know. And so my read of this case is that is that the mother is shocked. Right. And what I appreciate, especially in being able to hear currently growing in, in California's voice is, and, and this is true of Healing Wife and all these responses, the purpose of our podcast, and as much as it has a purpose, isn't to solve things. We would like to, uh, you know, if we if we had that power, that would be great. But oftentimes, the advice that we give directly or indirectly is really complicating people's lives, to yeah. be honest, because they're in a point where they're stuck uh, and they don't quite know what to do or they know what to do, but don't want to have to complicate their lives by doing it. There's no way around this. You either hide it or it comes out into the light. And it doesn't mean that the rainbow comes out and everybody, you know, the birds sing. It means that there's some months or even years of a relationship that is transformed by honesty. Mm-hmm. Um, and she'll, she is freed up. But there is no ideal outcome when there is a, a trauma of this magnitude. Right. And it's all in process, and we, we can only go forward with with truth. Right. Yeah. We, we, our motto is we don't solve it, but we'll be there for the struggle. That's yeah. kind of how we feel about it. We're grappling. That's my thing. We're always grappling. They say, I and heard that about lists. you. You're a grappler. Making lists. Making lists grappling. on butcher paper. And advocating for the cats of the world as well as... The cats and the pool boys, it turns out. There's a lot of, there's a lot of advocating. And the pussies. Wow. Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Amory Sievertson. We're recording at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon. Josh Millman is our engineer. Our theme music is by the Portland band Wonderly. Vocals are by Liz Weiss. Subscribe to Dear Sugar Radio on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Dear Sugar Radio. And we always love your emails. Write to us at dearsugarradio at gmail.com. Do it. Hi, I'm Erica Lance. Clearly, you like Dear Sugar enough to listen all the way to the end. So I think you might like this podcast I produce, Kind World. Kind World tells deeply personal stories about the pivotal moments in our lives. She called me one day and she says, why are you choosing to live in our grief? And I said, I'm not. I'm choosing to live in your love. All of those women were witness to the darkest and probably most intimate moment of my life. And they gave me a sliver of light. I talked to all kinds of people about times when they felt scared or alone or overwhelmed and how they got through it with the help of others. I even thought I was a little crazy. But then I'm like, wait, I could do anything I want. I could raise a million dollars if I want to. I could cure this disease. I think that he bypassed all that bullshit and just said, I see a human being who needs my help and I'm going to help him. Head over to WBUR.org slash kindworld or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Thanks.